Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Think Peace with me, Max Burnell. This instalment is the last of the mini-series focusing on digital privacy before we move on to take a look at the fascinating subject of artificial intelligence, but more of that later. Coming up, you'll be hearing my conversation with Goldsmiths Global Media and Politics Professor Marianne Franklin. Marianne is an interesting and well-travelled character with an academic background in varied topics from history, music, social and political theory and international relations. Before coming to the UK, she taught at universities in New Zealand, the Netherlands and the US. Recently, her research has focused on human rights issues and the internet, and she's served on the UN Internet of Governance Forum and is currently the chair of the Global Internet Governance Academic Network. Bit of a mouthful there, so I believe they call it GigaNet for short. This interview was recorded earlier in the year against a backdrop of European terror attacks and during the committee stages of the Snoopers Charter. We had a fascinating discussion about encryption, politics, big business and human rights in relation to privacy. She believes there is a centre ground that can be reached in the debate, but highlights the problems associated with cross-border control of the internet and, of course, cross-border big business with companies like Google, etc. I spoke to her on Skype from New Zealand, so please do excuse the compression. So, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy Think Peace Episode 3 with Professor Marianne Franklin. All right, OK, so... Um Professor Franklin, thank you ever so much for speaking to me. So, okay, I suppose perhaps we should start. Um, what are the sort of political positions associated with this security or privacy debate? And um, what sort of role do you think the media plays in framing the topic? That's two questions in one. Yeah. So, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, because you're right to frame them as one question. These are actually interconnected. So I think, um, to start with the first part, what are the political positions? I think you need to make a distinction between domestic political positions, such as we're seeing in the UK, for instance, and how these debates might play out in other parts of the EU, such as Germany, where they're very different yeah. in terms of you know uh, the German political scene, different again in the Netherlands, and certainly different again down in Turkey, meaning in terms of the southern parts of the larger Europe. So, um, and then of course the positions that are taken at the UN level and other more global um, international venues where these debates rage just as fiercely. So when you say political positions, if we're meaning party positions, I think in the case of um, privacy versus security, you will see within the UK a, a bilateral opposition to the investigatory powers bill. Because as you know, Tom Watson and I believe it's David Davis um, have joined uh, forces to protest yes. this bill on the basis of its undermining fundamental rights and freedoms as inscribed in not only the European uh, Convention on Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all subsequent charters and treaties and covenants, to be more accurate, to which the UK, the British government, is a signatory. So in that sense, the political positions are interesting in the UK, not strictly defined by Conservatives versus Labour. Mm -hmm. But I think having said that, if you know about the, the Tom Watson and David Davis um, allegiance, I think it isn't strictly left versus right, at least in the UK context. 
it isn't strictly definable by that. Yeah. Um, I think and as we burrow, as we dig deeper and deeper into what it might mean to ensure the sorts of privacy online that, for instance, the German debates are talking about, mm -hmm. or in the Netherlands, where we're talking about each person having a completely identifiable digital identity, which effectively one already has as a sort of privacy, uh, personal privacy, individualized, uh, encoded, encrypted um, online identity. So um, it's very much, it is very new ground for most political parties. But my point is that the domestic politics play out across these issues differently within the different and between the different members of the EU alone. Yes. Let alone if you compare it to, say, different parts of the world where um, these debates are working at another level of um, assumptions about state interventions. And I think the thing about encryption is that the large corporations, the corporate service providers that pretty much own and control all we do, have been under pressure in the, in the aftermath of Snowden to ensure that encryption is a default setting, meaning um, basically to, <laughs> to basically uh, contradict Google's whole modus operandi, which is privacy does not exist online. Now, Google has changed their tune in the, in the aftermath of Snowden. But they used to be a major corporate service provider who did not um, believe, quote-unquote, in privacy as we are now understanding it. But in terms of political parties, I think a lot of political parties in the UK, uh, in the EU, are really struggling with these challenges because they're technical challenges, they're legal challenges, and they're also social and ethical challenges. And I think um, uh, it's... It's, it's a difficult one. It would be too simplistic to say it's simply a Labour versus Conservative. Yes, yes. And I think if you look more deeply at how the voting is going and some of the questions, particularly immediately after Snowden from Keith Baz, you know, revealing a very strong preference for state security over and above all other rights and freedoms. The problem with the way the media frames these topics and the spin doctors who are, who are steering the media coverage or the sensations that guard that guide the headline making is it's posed as an either or security state security versus privacy it's not true they're not mutually exclusive and one should not be put ahead of the other is is the basic un um, human rights uh, council position however the two sorts of security we're talking about here state security national security is not the same as say your security when you're doing your banking online and the two tend to get muddled up yes that's a very, right? very interesting yeah point. it's very important to decide which security we're talking about because when um i was uh, moderate i was organizing and then moderating a large plenary session in 2014 at the in berlin at what is called the european dialogue on internet governance and that was our that was our theme human rights security privacy and to try and understand these things as mutual rather than exclusive. Yes. Um, but the basic position I think on the whole of the so-called left progressive voices are not, no state security, not at the cost of um, our rights and freedoms. Yes. The domestic situation, how, you know, you know um, national politics play out in the various parts of the EU who are all involved in the kind of EU level policy framing and decisions. These are not purely national decisions, despite what the nationalists 
and the sovereignty people want to say, the internet is by definition cross-border. So this is a huge jurisdiction issue. You can only guarantee a person person's privacy online up to a point when they're using a cloud service. So it's it's highly relative. In ter- you cannot define it anymore simply by the national borders, which is how, of course, national parties, political parties, want to understand it. Yes. So it's very difficult. Yeah. Oh, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? Um, okay, so do, do you think uh, perhaps our understanding of privacy has changed from that of previous generations? Yes, but I remember, first of all, what we mean by privacy and we is a very Western understanding in Western Europe based on the individual, the right to have a private life. This goes back to before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was, was drafted and privacy became one of the key rights and freedoms in that document. But it has changed, and the more we understand how different cultures understand privacy, they realize it's um, uh, it's very difficult to talk purely of this in terms of an individual person, because there's issues around communities. The fact that in the UK, privacy is understood very differently from, say, oh, I don't know, don't want to sort of underscore stereotypes, but say parts of Italy. You know, the idea that what you do at, in your home is private, uh, and nobody's business is understood very differently in other cultures. So mm-hmm. privacy is actually becoming um, in itself as a cultural, is, is culturally embedded. But I think privacy has changed because of now of what people do online. So yes, it has a digital dimension, which is new. Um, and it has also a CCTV dimension, which the um, online privacy debates are, are revealing. The UK is one of the most densely CCTV covered countries in the plant on in the world. So the British citizen has been walking around totally um, filmed and photographed at all points in time, and yet does not see this as an invasion of their privacy or privacy, however one says it. Yes, <laughs> so, yes I never know which way. Um, so it has been changing as we become more and more dependent on uh, web-based communications. And uh, research into how young people use social media suggests that there are shifts and yes. how people experience it and how people understand it when it has been, um, what's the word, abused. People don't think about your, you don't think about your privacy until somebody invades it. So, so do you think perhaps um, in regards to, you know, the Twitter posts about what you're having for breakfast or, or <laughs> whatever? <laughs> See, I think uh, former generations might have thought that that was sort of voluntarily giving up your privacy and yet people seem to freely give that up but do you so do you think it's more about consent because we agree to give this information up about ourselves but we we don't necessarily agree to all of our internet browsing history for example being made available retrospectively to lawmakers you know or actually um me currently is available to all the corporate service providers we use facebook twitter google all the cloud service we use, actually, uh, when we tick that box, we are supposedly consenting to having all our metadata uh, stored and archived by that service provider on the basis that it will give us a better, quote-unquote, experience. It isn't just governments who are data mining and tracking us. It is also our, the, the, the service providers that we are so dependent on as well, quite disproportionately as well, according to some, to many activists. So, yes, it is a question of consent, but informed consent is very different from having to tick a box full of small print 
and not able to use a service unless you abide by their terms and conditions, which basically in, in terms of Facebook is that we know everything about you. Yes. Because it's our service, our platform, all your data is for us to know and for you to assume we will treat it properly. And there's been recent scandals around Facebook's use of people's online data for the purpose of experiments, marketing and all sorts of things. Yes, that so was interesting. Yeah. The manipulation, uh, didn't they manipulate some people's um, news feeds to see how they would react, etc. Oh, good, you're up to date with that, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. So that, um, that kind of highlights those abuses from the point of view of corporate um, service providers. Yes, and, and it seems to me perhaps that we're, in some ways, we do seem to be looking the wrong way in all this. Uh, we're obviously outraged by, uh, seemingly outraged by government in, intrusion, where perhaps mm. we haven't ticked a box to consent to that intrusion. Mm. Um Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. we're being manipulated and monetized from uh, from corporate interests um, who aren't ultimately accountable in any way. At least if we don't like what the government's doing, we can vote for another party or something. At least uh, on paper, yes, well, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, not not so easy to replace Google tomorrow, or no, you try de googling your life like I've been trying. It's almost impossible. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yes, but this is, you've hit up the point about, uh, uh, my thinking at the moment is that, um, we'll, we'll return to your main questions in a minute, my, my, my feeling is there's two issues here. Um, the whole Snowden revelations and the NSA mass surveillance and the five, the prison program we first heard about in 2013, they were all signed on to by these large corporations. Microsoft was one of the first to sign up to the Five Eyes program. This is big business. But do we hear from those corporations back in 2009 when they first signed on? No. Did they make a big fuss about the, 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 the invasiveness and the disproportionality of these kinds of um, federal um, um, spying programs? No. The corporations have made very, very good PR out of this complete mess that um, Snowden has uh, revealed in terms of how governments, or at least the US government and its ally, have been disproportionately spying on citizens um, without our consent and without due cause. That's the point. However, there's not enough um, being said or examined about just the complicity of corporate service providers. Do they need to take that much data? Do they need to mine it that much? And do they need to archive that much? And uh, privacy activists like Helen Nissenbaum, of course, are starting to say, no, they don't. Yeah. And that we must also, we, yeah, so we do need to look both ways. Um, corporate service providers and state agencies work together to refine these digital tools. There's a whole business in security, online security, in terms of an online surveillance. These are corporate design tools, as well as government deployed tools. Yes, that's a very good point. Mm. Okay, um, so <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about this forever. <laughs> I know, it's like a Pandora's box. Where were we? It really is. <laughs> so um, the media do play a role in framing and political positions depend on the national, the international, uh, um, the national, the regional and the international setting. Um, but you cannot confine these positions to a purely national debate. And this is where in the UK it's very striking how uh, insular and, um, what's the word, disingenuous some of the comments are from leading voices that it's all about national security at all costs. 
all these national security measures are being made in collaboration with other countries. Okay, so so in in, in that respect, is the internet itself being as it is a sort of, uh, you know, it has no regard for national borders really. Um, is the internet in need of governance? Uh, and if so, how should we go about governing it? You know, um, I, I I've seen you you've done some work around a bill of uh, rights for the internet. Yeah. And I think they might have adopted something like this in Italy already. Uh, could you explain this a little for us? Well, in terms of does the internet need governing, it's always been governed. Always. Um, but mainly by technical communities, uh, usually US-based, um, who meet together, sometimes under the auspices of the UN, but in informal settings, who set the standards, the codes, and so on. It's always been governed in the strictest understanding of the engineering understanding of the term. It is also officially governed in terms of the domain name system by ICANN, which is the Internet Corporation of Assigned Names and Numbers, which is again a US, currently still a US-owned corporation. It's always been governed. The question about internet governance now is what, are the role, what is the role of our nation states in setting that agenda and in imposing um, international human rights norms onto this long, long-standing practice of figuring it out as you would in any engineering problem. So in that sense, um, the frame, a uh, uh, human rights-based framework for, for considering what the state of nations, the role of nation states is, has been an intervention for some years to try and open up, um, try and make more transparent decisions that always, have always been made behind closed doors and behind our screens. So um, we all need to disabuse the public to think that the internet was once not governed, now it needs governing, and the best govern, governing bodies of this is the nation state. I think um, I've argued in other um, publications that the nation state has left it alone to the private sector for 25 years and in light of not only the global financial crisis but the increasing awareness of um, internet communications from a sort of national security and foreign policy and economic point of view is now claiming its, its what should we call it, um, legal right to impose regulations when it wishes. So there's been a shift in terms of how nation states at the UN and certainly national politicians have understood um, the governmental role. Uh, but to date it's been pretty much private, privately run, owned and governed. Yes. Until it breaks some kind of law, and this is where we're in the middle of everything now, everything has to be reinvented or revisited, which laws that exist and which international instruments, particularly human rights instruments, still apply and which need to be re-articulated to make sense for um, the online environment. And that's the work I've been doing with others on the chart of human rights and principles for the internet. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating work. Did it answer your question at all? Because that's like, wow, that's, that's a huge question. Yeah, no, it is a huge question. <laughs> no, you, no you, it was a very comprehensive answer. It, it was, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, it seems like we've touched upon a few of these already, actually. So, um, okay. what's your opinion on this often sort of bandied phrase, if you've got nothing okay. to hide, you've got nothing to fear? Is, is there a, a logic in that? Or? Well, there's a famous quote by Snowden himself saying uh, everybody's got something to hide uh, and um, I don't quite know how he puts it but I think you can probably look it up he makes a very astute comment everyone's got something to hide so this is completely complete nonsense this is a conservative position it is identified at least in the UK with more conservative party voting voices uh, 
but everyone has something to hide. And the trouble, once you let fundamental rights and freedoms go and you create these huge online surveillance machines, which already exist, but you legitimize them by passing laws such as the Investigatory Powers Bill, you actually lay the groundwork for the abuse of rights in such a way that we've never seen. And that's Snowden's point. He says it far more elegantly than I have done, but yeah. Yeah, I, th um, I think I heard him at one point say something, um, he, he compared it to freedom of speech, just because you don't care about freedom of speech, you know, it's probably, again, probably more eloquently than I'm saying it, but it's probably because you've got nothing to say, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, we've got everything to fear when we're talking about tools that are being developed that will, uh, like like we saw in the film or in the novel, um, uh, Minority Report, remember? Yes, with Tom yeah. Cruise, the film in 2006 or 2004 where these pre-cognitive pre programs are being developed right now using our metadata, trillions and millions of God knows how many terabytes, how many acres and acres and acres of, um, of, of databases are being used to try and um, computate whether you can predict a terrorist attack like we've just seen in Belgium. But as a security expert said, he, he said, you know, if you know what if you know what the telltale signs are, you don't need a computer. But um, so I, I, my, what makes me even more um, concerned at the moment with with the aftermath of these three recent attacks and bombings and the death that's incurred is that we're going to see, you know, of course, a knee-jerk reaction from national governments and the EU itself, where rights and freedoms like privacy, the right to freedom of movement, the right to information. Uh, free speech and all that sort of thing are going to be completely, what's the word, negated in order to set up these huge programs that are supposedly going to sweep the web to find who these terrorists are. Fifteen out of fifteen suspects and perpetrators of the recent, recent attacks were already known to the authorities. Okay, so we touched upon quite a few of these questions already. So, um... Why do we want to be private in our communications and why is it so important and perhaps why is it so particularly important to journalists and free speech? Well, let's start with journalists first of all. It's almost impossible now for a journalist to protect their sources um, online. It's too, even if you, um, even with encryption, uh, that can be that can be cracked and also some argue that encryption is actually like a big red flag to a bull if you're in a journalist and you're known to the authorities as one. For instance, in places like Turkey, right? Or investigative journalists. So um, we're not talking about privacy in the case of journalism here. We're talking about protection of sources. Obviously, they overlap, but they're protected by different sorts of um, uh, regulations and laws. So there's um, a different set, particularly at the UN, there's a different, and at the EU, um, at the European level, there are different laws governing um, the right, you know, um, the protection of sources for journalists. But of course, their own privacy, their own personal space, their domestic, you know, their home life, their working life is also being intruded into more and more, and more, by more and more invasive forms of um, surveillance of what they do. So, uh, in order for us to have a healthy um, society and for journalists to do the work when they do it properly and do it well, it's crucial that they can protect their sources in ways that are that are, are affordable, 
and feasible. Um, but they're running greater and greater risks, journalists, because, for instance, nowadays don't even contact a source if you think there's going to be any issues by email. That is effectively a public um, interface. Your mobile phone can be tracked. All messages can be, um, can be what's the word, subpoenaed. Mm -hmm. If you're using a US-based service provider, all your data can be subpoenaed by the US government. And that's what the IP bill is trying to have the equivalent of in the UK. Now, I've heard, um, well, I was speaking to this encryption expert, and um, mm. he, he was making the point that in the investigatory powers bill, as they're mm. suggesting um, that it, they would require tech companies to decrypt information, there's a real danger with building so-called backdoors into any system. Um, that once it's been opened for one person, then it's very likely that those who might wish to do us harm could also get their hands on this information once the door's been opened. Do you think this is an issue? You know? Yeah, I think it is. If you look at it purely from a technical point of view, the question is, um, I think most techies would say at the end of the day, no code is uncrackable. Um, from the point of view of the, the ordinary citizen, you know, encryption is for many people cumbersome. And... Um, the Council of Europe at the moment, its uh, Internet um, and Human Rights uh, um, Division, has been advocating for some time now under their privacy uh, uh, focus, um, uh, privacy by default online, which implies encryption by default, right? But then you're giving enormous power to the encryptors and the decryptors, the, the encoders and the decoders, so it raises another set of ethical questions. My issue is, from, a, from from the point of view of an ordinary citizen, just trying to get about their daily business, right? Why should we have to encrypt everything we do, in order to avoid being, um, in order to be, avoid being uh, disproportionately spied upon by either our governments or our service providers? What protections and certainly what kind of redress do we have? That means, what kind of legal remedies does an ordinary person have? when they uh, perceive that their personal data is being misused by, say, Facebook or by the UK government. None. There is no redress. There are a few individual cases like Max Schrems against Facebook, and he's won a huge victory. You know, one could ask, that's, one could say it's a Pyrrhic victory, because what does it mean for the rest of us? But um, arguing that Facebook did misuse uh, their what's the word, did misuse their access to his private data. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's really troubling to think that we now have to encrypt our emails to our teachers, our supervisors, our parents, our loved ones, um, just in order to have a life. I mean, that's just an atrocious state of affairs. Yes, yes. If I could put it sort of quite emotionally, that's where we're heading. So if it's encryption by default, that means it gets done for you which is how, of course, the mobile phone operators are now proceeding. And remember, back in 2011, the UK government, Cameron's government, was getting all hot under the collar about the fact that the, the, um, the, the young people who were rioting were using Blackberries, which had their own SMS system. Yes. And the government couldn't break it. Ah. Quite frankly, I think the IP bill has built in, according to experts, some modicum of checks and balances in terms of the due process a law enforcement agency or a surveillance agency would have to go through in order to access our data. But the point is, they already have our data. These are all about data retention and how long you can hold on to 
these huge databases of you and I talking right now, the metadata record of you and I's conversation right now. Yes, yes. Um, once that data is retained, it can be accessed. The laws can change later. So we've got two issues. The fact that these, these providers and governments are already archiving and, and hanging on to all of this knowledge, all these data, and now they want to have laws that allow them to access it when they wish to. This is different from normal, normal surveillance. Normal surveillance is you need to get a warrant to be able to, 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 to uh, what's the word? Observe someone who you think is um, a criminal. This is, this is criminalizing by default. So there's a huge moral, the moral compass has gone completely haywire. I was speaking to um, Professor of the Philosophy of Information, yeah, Professor yeah. Floridi, and, yeah. he, and he made the point that your whole past is being stored that could possibly be used in the future. It's making an imprint. And in so, yes. in so doing, it's denying us the ability to be able to change almost. And um, evidence might be dug up from our past to support you know, a case against us in the future. And it's, yeah. this has never been an issue before. And it's a really pressing thing that lots of people don't seem to think about. True, but I mean, you know, there is a little bit of a trade-off here. Back in the 90s, this was already, you know, when we were all rejoicing and being able to go online uh, without having to use our real names and things like that, you know, this idea that we were on one great big public park was a wonderful feeling. Um, you know, um, secure transactions for banking and payments notwithstanding, just the sort of everyday interaction, um, that was a glorious time. But of course now it's become commercialized and monetized um, and we have some of the world's largest corporations now actually own and control those very everyday communications. This archiving of our lives is in fact going on um, in ways that we hadn't foreseen known. But you know, photo albums and all that sort of thing are also available in, for later generations to pick through and draw inferences from. It's a question of the scale, yeah. <laughs> the scale that we now have because of the ability, because storage costs nothing and digital data can be compressed. So, you know, even on a personal point of view, we can, we can put our whole lives in digital format and upload it onto our various devices for our own use and enjoyment later. Yeah. But the difference now is that is all interconnected in ways that are kind of cool. But since Snowden, we've now realized it interconnected for one, huge commercial purposes. People are making, companies are making money out of our interactions. And also, of course, the whole issue around um, abuses from the point of view of law enforcement and uh, state security apparatuses. So the ordinary user, the ordinary citizen, is being squeezed from both sides. And I think it's a real, kind of loss of innocence time. But I wouldn't want to sort of suggest that just because we we're online we, before then we didn't have personal archives. And before then we didn't have pasts. We wouldn't want to be seen like all those old photo albums of our parties when we were undergraduates. Mm, mm. Difference is they're now all online as opposed to being stuck in the back of a shelf. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the ownership and control issue is even more important. If they're being posted on Pinterest or Tumblr or Facebook, who owns those images? It's not immediately clear that they're ours to keep. So that's a very good point. Okay, so perhaps just on a final point, um, what do you think it is about surveillance that is perhaps so damaging? Um, do you think 
it changes who we are on some kind of level. Not if you don't know about it. Yeah. Not if you don't care. But if you do care and do know about it, I think it changes the way you think about what you do and what you say when you even write an email. And you should think about what you say and do when you write an email in the workplace because that is, in fact, not your private domain. And emails can also be subpoenaed. Uh, employers can also um, request our email records from their server. Um, but when you're... Yeah, I think it does change. I think there has been a chilling effect um, for many people in the West who've grown up and become dependent on this way of communicating via their Facebook page. But also, you know, there's research that shows that um, young people, teenagers, who know their mum and dad are on their Facebook page, soon learn how to code what they say. And they don't need encryption for that. You know, they can just change words. You don't need, I think there's a, high, there's, there's, there's a tendency to want the high-tech solution, which is suitable for certain instances. Um, but as the late Kasper Bowden would say, there is no such thing as you know, locked and sealed ultimate privacy online, as in you can do what you want and no one can find you. But there is the right to be left alone as that sort of more moral, ethical right. And as Joe Kanatachi, who's the new, brand new UN Special Rapporteur for Privacy, says there's also what he calls a right to have a personality. So that's him saying, okay, so you've got a grotty photo of yourself drunk and um, disorderly in Ibiza last summer on your Facebook page. So what? That shouldn't be used, be able to be used against you. So, um, and he goes on far more sophisticated ways to argue about the right to have a personality means that we, we should be able to be online without fear of punishment for what we did last year if we didn't break the law. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, no, it, de it definitely does. I, 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 that's everything I've got, I think. Is there anything you'd like to add? Not really. I, I feel like, you know, it's... it's um, I suppose the main thing is to try and understand privacy in a culturally sensitive way and to realise security and privacy are intertwined and not, not mutually exclusive legally in legal terms. But that I think this is, this is a whole new domain in which most of us are working. And I think if you talk to people who are, you know, young people who are 10, 11, 12 years old and, and then to people who've just discovered the internet, I was um, in a research situation, so my last word would be, you know, it's still really exciting. If you come from a disadvantaged community or if you're, for instance, homeless, I've done work with homelessness and um, how they use these technologies and these media. So exciting to be able to connect in ways you couldn't before uh, because of physical or financial um, um, disadvantage. Still exciting. It is still exciting to go online and to discover a whole new world. And my real problem is that the securitization of and this commercialization is going hand in hand with securitization of our online lives but also there's a criminalization of our everyday life that is not just online it, it happens when we um, come and go from the airport you know being fingerprinted is a form of criminalization it's become normalized but only criminals get used to get fingerprinted not ordinary citizens leaving an airport yes so once again remember 15 out of 15 suspects and perpetrators of the recent terrorist attacks over the last few years were already known to the police yeah. by good old-fashioned police police work it's a worrying thought but there's reason to be optimistic as you say you know i don't uh, know if there's how many reasons to be cheerful as um ian drury sings but um 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an exciting time to be alive, I think, and to be thinking about these questions. Well, yes, I think I think the I think the so-called digital natives really need to start pushing back and really need to start reconfiguring these discourses in ways that make sense. Yeah. Um, but but the corporates and the governments and the technical communities are all complicit in some of these processes, and others are also um, engaged in, in 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 fighting back. Yeah. So there you have it, my friends. Some interesting points there. I hope you'll agree. As I said, that was the last of the digital privacy for now. Next time we'll begin our exploration of a subject that I find absolutely fascinating. Bizarrely, a subject that we've been thinking of since ancient times, and that brings into question our very nature and role in the universe as humans and conscious beings. I am of course talking about artificial intelligence. I'm looking forward to bringing you my discussions with some of the foremost experts on the controversial and entirely fascinating subject. Exciting stuff indeed, so be sure to stay tuned for that. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, send an email to contact.thinkpiece at gmail.com. Find the podcast on Facebook and Twitter and please do be sure to get liking and sharing. So, thanks for listening and until next time, take care. Peace.